Good evening, Gateway Church. As Gail said, my name is Mike Nekia. It's my honor to bring a message from the Word of God to you this first Wednesday worship of 2021. I'm really excited. I was originally scheduled to preach on June 23, but you know how it goes. Many of the plans in the mind of a man, but it's the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Proverbs 19.21. I'm not sure that would rhyme in Hebrew, but in English it would be great. But seriously, isn't that the way it goes so much of the time? We get it in our minds to do something, to go somewhere, to achieve some goal, only to have it not pan out the way we had thought it would. We have all experienced the humbling truth of Proverbs 16, 19, which says, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Remember the word establish as it will play a key role as we close the sermon later tonight. We know that so many of our specific aspirations in life do not come to fruition. And the same goes for life in general, does it? Life and death. Now let me ask you a question, just a random question. Let me poll the room this evening. Raise your hand if you are or have ever been active on social media. <laughs> Raise your hand if you've heard of social media. <laughs> and you hate it. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, MySpace. Bob, I knew you should raise your hand. Lots of good stuff posted on those platforms. For instance, we now know how to correctly put the toilet paper on the toilet paper roll. <laughs> this, supposedly, is the specs the first time uh, the roll was invented, so we now know it definitely goes over and on. Well, what about the debate as to whether or not this dress is really white and gold or blue and black. It is blue and black, we discovered that. But if you look at it from different lights, it can appear to be gold. I mean, if you're, if you're a loser like me, you've seen all this on social media, so you know these are very, very important things we learn on the internet. And along with all that life-shattering information, we also get the day-to-day, minute-by-minute, second-by-second record of all the mundane activities of those who share their lives away, using their cell phones as their own personal biographer. And if they ever don't like what they see through the eyes of their iPhone, they can always delete the picture away and take a new one, until they can. You see, I bring all this up, and, and if you get to know me, I try to make a lot of jokes, because usually what I talk about is pretty heavy. Um, I try to put a lighthearted spin on it in order to demonstrate the fact that we all know that life is fleeting, that it's frail. Today, I have to share, this isn't in my notes, I had a migraine and I'm subject to migraines and I really knew I wasn't going to die, but it felt that way. And so as I'm preparing for tonight, it, it, it brings home whenever anyone struggles with illness or any type of uh, issue in their life, it brings really home the fact that life is fragile and it's fleeting. And we're finite. In light of that, I've had friends, and I'm sure those of you that raise your hands that uh, frequent social media has had friends in the distant past, or maybe not so distant past, that have passed away. Some who were ill, and although they had high hopes for recovery, they knew that their life could be near its end. Or others were taken away without warning, not knowing that their life was indeed running out. And with the advent of social media platforms like Facebook and Twitter, we have at times, most times, we have records of these daily departments 
departed friends and loved ones' last words and their final posts and their final tweets. In the past, if you had a journal from somebody that passed away that was really important, or if there was a letter that was written, but now, you know it's annoying. People write every second of the day what they're doing. We can have records of the same day that someone passes away of what they were doing. Some thinking long and hard, those that know they were, their time was short, have to compose something that would stand the test of time once they're gone. Some final goodbyes. Others seemingly unaware that the number of their days was reaching the limit set by God before they were born. They just type away. I'm late for work. I'm going to the beach. Watching Netflix. Let's go Mets. Those would have been terrible words, but we are in first place. <laughs> Still only four games. So. But mundane stuff. And we who are left behind have the record of their final hour, even their final minute on planet Earth, unaware that time was slipping away from them. This is unique time. For what it's worth, like it or hate it, it's very unique to be able to see what people are planning to do the very day of their death. It's fascinating, and more importantly, it's very sobering. Very often I've looked at profiles and seen what were they thinking that day? Next thing you know, it says RIP. It's like, what happened? And the day that they died, had it worked. I mean, they never knew. Brothers and sisters, we're all mortal. We all have a fixed amount of time lent to us on the earth, and we do not know which day will be our best. So what do we do? We pray. I'm going to pray now. But we pray. Please bow your heads for a quick word of prayer. Dear Lord, I lift up this sermon to you. I pray that only your word would come out. I pray that what you were speaking uh, through Moses during the time of his writing would be clear and evident to us today. To those of us that have ears to hear, I pray you would allow us to hear what your word says. I pray that we would uh, believe it, we would acknowledge it, and that we would live in accordance with it in order to glorify you and to build up your church. In Jesus' name I pray. So please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 90. I'm going to be making a lot of scripture references tonight, but uh, they'll be mostly on the screen, so you'll be able to stay at Psalm 90. And thank you, Caleb, for reading that for us. So as you turn to Psalm 90, we're going to see a couple of things as way of background. We see, first of all, that the heading says, A Prayer of Moses, the Man of God. And that's inspired scripture. And we see that this was not written by David or Solomon or the sons of Korah. No, this particular psalm was written by Moses, which makes it the oldest psalm by a great many years, by millennia. And in it, Moses is called the man of God in his description. So this speaks of Moses' high position and his unique credentials. If you recall the story back in Numbers 12, when his brother and sister Aaron and Miriam opposed him, and the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and it says in verses 6 to 9, and he said, hear my words, this is God speaking. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak out against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. Moses, the man of God, 
And we have the privilege of his song, of his prayer, of his song recorded for us in Psalm 90. Now, this psalm is probably prayed or sung or recorded during Israel's 40 years of wandering through the desert. As the bodies begin to drop, thank you, Caleb, for that analogy, as they begin to drop all around them and the wicked generation begins to die, Moses is moved to cry out to the Lord on their behalf. And remember the reason for their wandering. It's their sin of unbelief. And we'll get back to that in a second. And so now with that bit of background established, we will Lord willing walk through Psalm 90, verse by verse, exegetically, examining the text, and by God's grace, draw important applications for our lives today. So starting in verse 1, it says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. So Moses here states that God has been Israel's dwelling place in all generations. A dwelling place, not a, a place of refuge, a place to hide, a place to rest, a temporary house, but a home. A permanent residence. But how can this be? Let's look at Israel's history briefly. Back to Abraham, before Israel was even born, before Jacob was even born. Back to Abraham. What was Abraham's first act of faith? Well, he believed God. We know that. And what was it? It was counted to him as righteousness, his faith. Now, what was his second act of faith? Or better yet, how did Abraham demonstrate his act of faith? He went. The Lord said, go, and Abraham went. God said, leave, and Abraham left. Leave everything you know, leave your home, leave your relatives, leave your dwelling place, and go. So Abraham, or Abram, at 75 years of age, went. And as he went, and as he wandered, and as he sojourned, who was his dwelling place? Who was his permanent home? Jehovah was. And so we see that as Israel is commanded to wander in the wilderness for 40 years, that Moses now prays, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. You see, he was looking back, past Egypt, past Joseph, past Jacob, past Isaac, all the way to Abraham, and whatever followed all of their soul journeys, throughout all that time, through all of Genesis, in all the events that took place, there was one constant. And that one constant was God. So how can it be said that the Lord was a dwelling place to a wandering people? Because God is eternal. Verse 2, Psalm 90. It says, Before the mountains were brought forth, wherever you have formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. See, brothers and sisters, this truth is the prerequisite. It must be known, it must be recognized, it must be acknowledged before anything else. In other words, God is the prerequisite. He comes first. He is first. He is eternal, it says, from everlasting, having no beginning, to everlasting, having no end. In Exodus 3.14 and John 8.58, he is known as I Am. That's his covenant name, Yahweh. In Revelation 1.8, he's called the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, who is, who was, and who is to come. You see, Moses knew and understood this. God comes before all things because God created all things. 
including apparently immovable permanent things like mountains. We always hear mountains mentioned in the Bible because we can't move them. But God can. It takes a mighty God to make a mighty mountain. It sounds corny, but it's true. And as creator of all things, God is in charge of all things, including and especially including human beings. Now Moses knew this, therefore he prays in verse 3, You, O Lord, return man to dust. That sounds familiar, because this would harken back to Genesis 3.19, when God cursed men, and he declares, You are dust, and to dust you shall return. And in Ecclesiastes 12.7, Solomon laments this fact by saying, And the dust returns to the earth, as it was, and the Spirit returns to God, who gave it. Ladies and gentlemen, it is the Lord that is the master of life, and it is the Lord that is the master of death. He creates and He destroys. He gives life, and He takes life. And as the infinite being, God is above time. He is not bound by time, again, because it is He who created time. And being the creator of time, He does not experience its passage the way time-bound creatures do. Verse 4, to him, to God, a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. To us each day may seem like a thousand years long, but to God, a thousand years is as the blink of an eye. Now the ancient world marked the passage of the night with different watches, either three hours or four at a time, depending on how they calculate it. But you know when we sleep, when we go to sleep, Hours go by unnoticed by us. They fly by. But to God, this is the way millennia pass by. Right before his eyes. He is the sovereign master of time. And as its master, he oversees kingdoms and civilizations and peoples and languages. Kingdoms come and go. They rise and fall overnight as it seems. So in verse 6, Moses says, You, God, sweep them away as with a flood. They're like dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. That is what the sovereign Lord does to the most powerful nations on the globe. My wife Heidi and I love to travel, it's no secret. And as we visited places around the world, places such as Roman Colosseum, the Acropolis in Athens, Petra in Jordan, even Stonehenge in England. My hair was all black and gray. Have you seen what the Lord has done to these once mighty civilizations? At worst, we've seen grassy hills with nothing more than a sign. We traveled hours when we were in England looking for this heritage site, and it was a picture of a castle. When we got there, it was a hill with nothing on it and a sign. Wasted the whole day. <laughs> At best, we visited well-preserved ruins with a guided tour and overpriced gift shop in which we buy everything possible. <laughs> and what about ancient Babylon? You just need to ask Nebuchadnezzar about that. Or Assyria. Or ancient Egypt. For Egypt today, that's definitely on our bucket list. What do all these kingdoms have in common? As we look back, they're like a dream. 
The Lord swept them away as with a flood. What's the constant? The Lord, the Lord, the Lord. So Moses begins his prayer with the Lord. And so, brothers and sisters, should we. Now he's going to petition his God soon in some, uh, later on in Psalm 90. But first he sets the foundation upon which everything that comes after will be built upon. He says, from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. So application point number one, and don't get excited, we're not done. Tonight's application will come during the sermon, usually there at the end. Application point number one is just what Moses did, and it is to begin with God. Application point number one, begin with God. As a way of life, as an attitude, as an outlook, as a worldview. So when you pray, begin with God. Don't immediately run to what you need or want, or even with valid necessary requests for others. How many of us have been in a prayer meeting when the person leading the prayer meeting says, okay, for the next five minutes, we're only going to worship God and thank Him for who He is. And the second person in the prayer asks for something. <laughs> we're laughing, but I do too. It's human nature to ask. So it takes discipline to not and just thank God for who He is, worship Him for His existence. It takes practice, but that's what we need to start. That's how Moses started. So begin by acknowledging the one true and living God. And we all know that's also how the Lord Jesus taught his disciples to pray in Matthew 6 when he said, Our Father who is in heaven, holy is your name. First thing he said. So when you pray, begin with God. When you face various trials, begin with God. Know that he is in charge of whatever trial you're going through. When you encounter tough decisions, or even easy decisions, begin with God. View all things through the lens of His sovereignty and of His eternality. In everything, application one, begin with God. So back to Psalm 90, we're in verse 6. In, I'm sorry, in the first six verses that we read, we know that Moses set up the secure foundation of who God is, and he now moves on to something also important. He acknowledges the sinfulness of man. He starts with God is holy, but man is not. Now often we talk about the, the five points of reformed doctrine, the tulip, but I think it should start with an S, the tulip, because we should begin with the sovereignty of God before we even get to the total gravity, but that's my, that's another man. God is holy, we are sinful. And sin, if you didn't know, has its necessary consequences. He says in verses 7 and 8, For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are destroyed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. Brothers and sisters, know this. There are no secret sins. There are no secret sins. We can maybe hide them from each other. We might even be able to fool ourselves. I've done that. But we can't hide them from God. Hebrews 4.13 tells us, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of whom? Of him whom we must give an account. 
In 1 Corinthians 4, 5, Paul tells us that when the Lord comes, he will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. And the Lord Jesus warns us in Luke 12, 3, that whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. Can you imagine? That's terrifying. We need to take this warning seriously. There are no secret sins. And even if everyone around you sees you performing righteous deeds, remember the Lord that measures your heart. And He sees all things. So let this be a sober warning to us the next time we look down and criticize other people, or even wandering Israel. We know the story. You see, how can they be so dull? They just saw the Red Sea parted, and now they're going to they're make a calf. So we do the same things. So think about that. Keep that in mind as we continue. Verses 9 to 10, Moses says, For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end by the side. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and fly away. Toil and trouble for 70 to 80 years of hardship. Sowing crops only to reap thorns and thistles. Working by the sweat of our brows only to receive bread. And as we read earlier, we all return to the ground for out of it we were taken. For we are dust, and to dust we shall return. Genesis 3.19 And this is all due to the curse of sin. All of us being born sinners, inheriting Adam's sin, willfully committing our own sins as well, and acts of rebellion, have to realize that our best life now is filled with difficulties and hardships and ends in death. Aren't you happy you came to the first Wednesday worship? <laughs> we know that sin brings death. There's no getting around it. The odds of us dying are one in one. It's going to happen. Everyone that is born dies. And as 70 to 80 years, according to our finite perspective, seems like a long, long time, in the eyes of an eternal God, it is but the blink of an eye. James tells us in 4.14 in his letter that our lives are like vapors, a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. So Moses, pondering this, lamenting this, poses the question in verse 11. He asks, who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Who? Christians know that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? Job 28, Psalm 11, Proverbs 1, 9, and 13. The acknowledging of the true and honest worship of, the living in light of, the truth that he is, is the basis for a wise life, a true life, and a good life. Perhaps the implied answer of Moses' question is, no one considers that. Do any of us here tonight, I mean, if we really think about it, do any of us each day, each moment, truly consider the power of God's anger? I confess I don't. I consider his love, his grace, his forbearance, his forgiveness. I count on those things. But his righteous wrath towards sinners? Not so comfortable thinking about that. So ask yourself right now. 
do I do when I am faced with any temptation? Do I in that moment consider that God's white-hot anger burns toward every act of unbelief, every lustful look, every occasion of pride? Moses asks, who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Folks, if we don't naturally live accordingly, we have one option. One option. And that's we need to ask God for help. Yes, we need to beseech the Lord. We need to beg the Lord to give us the grace to do so. And that's when we come upon verse 12, which is the linchpin of what I'm going to talk about tonight. Psalm 90, verse 12 says, So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. So teach us to number our days so we may get a heart of wisdom. Moses, on behalf of Israel, a people who just sealed their faith, dooming themselves an entire generation to wandering aimlessly in the desert for 40 years, as long as it will take for every last unbelieving adult to die, every single one, this Moses now asks the Lord to teach them to number their days. And what does it mean to number our days? I mean, we know the Israelites knew how to count. I mean, it wasn't a plea for God to teach them how to make a calendar. They weren't asking the Lord to be a divine calculator. No, the prayer request here is for Yahweh to make the people of Israel mindful of the brevity of life. In other words, life is short. We have to make every day count. In Jonathan Edwards, that great 18th century American theologian, in his famous 70 resolutions, he lists as number seven to never do anything which I would be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. Let that sink in. That is the way to number your days. To live each day as if the Lord Jesus were coming back that very night. Because he might be. As he says in Matthew 24, verses 42 to 44, Jesus says, Therefore, stay away, for you don't know what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed away and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. So pray, Lord, teach us to number our days, because every minute counts. We already know that the Lord will call into account every idle word we speak. We must advise wisely. But that's the problem. Naturally, we're not wise. We are, by our nature, fools. And biblically speaking, foolish people don't lack intelligence. They don't lack information. Biblically speaking, they don't lack brain power or have a low IQ. The biblical definition of a fool is one who denies the existence of God. The biblical definition of fool is the one who denies the existence of God. Psalm 14 and Psalm 51, 53 1 says, The fool says in his heart, There is no God. The fool says in his heart, There is no God. And that is the problem. In Romans 1, Paul explains that every human being knows that God exists. Every single one. Because the fact is obvious by everything he's created around them. It's obvious to everyone, regardless of what they say. They know deep down that God exists. 
But the fool denies first with his heart, then with his mouth, and then ultimately with his life. He denies God and he suppresses this most basic truth, the first truth, application one truth, begin with God. The fool doesn't acknowledge what Moses claims to in verse 2 when he says, For everlasting, for everlasting, you are God. Therefore, with Moses, we pray, Lord, teach us to live wisely, to live in light of your magnificent existence, to live according acknowledging your creatorship and bowing to your sovereign rulership, your judgeship, your majesty, to in all our ways honor you, to humble ourselves before you, to rely on your kind hand for all grace. And now we have application point two again. Don't get excited. I'm not done. <laughs> application number two, number your days. Number your days. And this point has six parts. Number your days first by praying. Pray every morning when you wake and every evening before you sleep. Pray that the Lord will enable you by His grace to live the coming day as if it were your last day on planet Earth. Every morning and every evening. Pray. The second way to number your days is to prioritize. To set priorities based on the Lord's Word. Align your priorities with His priorities. And that's the key. Know what God cares about, and then you care about that as well. And you find out what God cares about through His Word. Find out what He cares about, prioritize what He cares about, and make those your daily priorities. That's how you number your days. And this logically leads to number three, practically. Walking closely with Jesus practically. Not ethereally, not with your head in the clouds, but tangibly. Following his perfect example. Knowing that it's all by grace. We're not saying just, just be like Jesus and you're saved. It's by grace. And his perfect example is laid out completely in the four Gospels. And it's summarized for us by Paul in Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4. Here's one way to emulate Jesus. He says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Practically. And that leads us to point number four. Part four. Make wise and godly decisions. How? Well, align your decision-making with His glory in mind. Think, how will my plans represent my Lord? How will this decision reflect Jesus' glory? Will it give Him honor? Or will it bring shame to Him? Part 5 of Number Your Days is guard your tongue. This is important. Or your fingers, if you're on social media. Speak words of encouragement filled with grace as to the needs of the situation, as Paul says in Colossians 4, 6. You don't have much time, so make what you say count. She's going to be embarrassed, but my wife Heidi, she's a, a, a woman of few words. I am the nagging husband, not the other way around. So when she says something, we perk up and listen. I'll never forget that. It's not in my notes, but during the North Shore Baptist days when we had a Wednesday worship and there were questions and the same five people we include would raise their hand right away. And you know, he would look, he wouldn't look at that. And whenever she would, he would jump in and call on her because she didn't say much. But what she said was always golden. 
Let's be like that. Let's what we say be few, but let it count. And then part six, review application one. Tie all these things together, prayer, prioritizing, walking with Jesus, good decision-making, gracious speech, with the acknowledgement and the existence of an eternal God, which is beginning with God. Number of days by beginning with God. And now, brothers and sisters, we're going to move on to the final portion of Psalm 90, which is Moses' prayer and our sermon ending this evening. Now, we see his petition of the Lord for grace and for mercy. The Bible records prayers similar to this by Moses in Exodus 32, Exodus 37, as well as Deuteronomy 9 and Psalm 106. In these passages, Moses, as a type of Christ, as a foreshadowing type of Jesus, stands in the gap between an angry God and sinful men. And here, in verses 13 to 17, in tonight's passage, he does the same thing. It says in verse 13, Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your service. Return as if, as if to say, Show us your kind face again, O God. Now it's not as, God, as if God went anywhere. He's everywhere, being omnipresent. From the heights of heaven to the depths of hell, he's there. In fact, in Psalm 139, verses 7 and 8, the psalmist writes, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my dead in Sheol, you are there. So Moses is pleading with God to shine his face upon Israel again. In verse 14, he continues along those lines and says, Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. In other words, in the midst of the wandering, the death march, please satisfy us with your love. Make us rejoice in you. Satiate the people with your abiding presence, like the manna that will continue to fall from heaven and feed wandering Israel. The Lord's steadfast love feeds the believer. It satisfies him or her. It completes us. Moses, who was clearly a believer, prays that this would be the reality for himself and all Israel as they embark on their 40-year journey round and round in the desert. Then, in verse 15, he prays, Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. Here, Moses fully recognizes that it is God who is afflicting them. As the Lord himself says in Isaiah 45, verse 7, the Lord says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. But like in the case of Job, which we're going to read in a second, Moses asks that the Lord would bless his people after afflicting them. Okay? In Job 42, verses 10 to 11, the story goes that the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon them. Here in Scripture it is clear that from the Lord's hand comes all things. He ordained all events that come to pass, every single thing. In Exodus, 
and referenced in tonight's psalm is the fact that the affliction or the evil that befalls Israel comes from God's hand. Folks, I say this very often. If you talk to me long enough, I'm going to say it. There is no random evil. There is no purposeless sin. Everything has its prescribed function in God's economy. Proverbs 16.4 says, The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. That is foundational. That's a foundational truth that believers must understand in order to make it in this world. Even though this is not Moses' main point in the text, it comes out of the way he's speaking. So here he is actually asking God to balance out their suffering with satisfaction. He's pleading with the Lord to even out their punishment with the pleasure of God's love. Now this is interesting because although it seems that Moses praises during their endless wandering in the desert, that they had already seen evil, right? Before as slaves in Egypt, yes, the harsh treatment that they had received as a people for 400 years certainly qualifies as affliction. And their journey right up to Canaan's borders, all that occurred on that journey was indeed difficult. But now as they embark on their final march, one that does not enter the promised land, a trek that we know would, in, it would result in the death of every adult except for Joshua and Caleb, Moses prays for mercy. mercy. In 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 to 5, we have the explanation of this, where Paul says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from that spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. That's the explanation. And now here's a warning of the same event coming from Hebrews chapter 3, verses 15 and 19. The writer says this, as it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For those, for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? Verse 19. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. And so, at the root of their sin was unbelief, and they paid the price. Nevertheless, here in Psalm 90, Moses prays for the Lord to have pity, and to show mercy, and to ease their coming suffering. He prayed that the Lord would continue to show his work, and to display his glorious power to Israel's children. That's verse 16. Now this is similar to Jesus' weeping over Jerusalem in Matthew 20-37, where he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that killed the prophets and stones those who were sent to it. How often I would gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Now note here who Jesus is desiring to gather. The children. Not the religious leaders, not the scribes and Pharisees, not the vipers that he spent the previous chapters condemning to hell. Rather, he desired to gather their children, 
the elect in Jerusalem. And so he did. He says in John 6, 33, all that the Father gives me will come to me. So he did. So now in Psalm 90, 16, Moses prays for the children of the doomed generation, that they would see God's glorious power, and so they did. When Israel did go and enter the promised land, 40 years later, they did witness Yahweh's mighty power, and they conquered the land and took possession of it as their promised inheritance. So here's a quick one. Application number three is pray for the children. We need to seek to work toward and pray for the welfare and blessing of God of future generations for our children and gateways future members. What better way to start than by serving the GBS? But that's just part of it. We need to seek the good of all future generations of Christians, and then we need to pray for God's elect to come to Him. Amen? And so that leads us to the final verse in our psalm this evening, verse 17. Moses says, Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us, and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. In the face of present hardship and pain and toiling and death, Moses prays for the favor or bounty or blessing of God to be upon Israel. Moses still clings to the mercy of God and looks to his grace to see them through. He asks that the Lord enable them to persevere and for him to establish the work of their hands. Remember about three hours ago at the start of my sermon where we talked about Proverbs 16:9, where it says, The heart of man cleanses his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. That's what he's praying for. Moses knew full well, knew full well, and we need to know that we cannot accomplish anything unless the Lord establishes our steps. We need the Lord to enable us by his grace. Unless Yahweh builds the house, those who build it labor in vain, Psalm 127, 1. I, Paul, planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. As Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 3, 7, he says, So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God gives the growth. So Moses says the words of verse 17, not to introduce the doctrine of man's inability, but he appeals to it as a given. He knows this is the case. He knows we can't accomplish anything apart from God's enabling grace. So brothers and sisters of Gateway Church, we need to pray in the same way. Just as beginning with God is a given, just as acknowledging our sin is a given, admitting that our sin brings God's wrath is a given, it stands to reason that any good work that we do is also a gift from God's gracious hand. Paul says in Ephesians 2.8-10, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God had that we should walk in them. And then he says later in, in Philippians 2.13, For it is God who works who be both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Amen. It's God working. So in closing this evening, we have set before us a prayer of Moses, the man of God. We have this as an example of how we, the people of God, children of God through adoption, should pray. In our three points of application, we saw that in all things and in all circumstances, in the way we pray, in the way we live, we must, number one, begin with God, acknowledge that He is, that He's creator eternal, that He's sovereign, that He ordains whatever comes to pass, that He's our dwelling place. Although we as the called out ones sojourn here on earth, our true citizenship is in heaven in Him. 
In stark contrast to his perfection, we are sinful. We acknowledge that. We walk in humility and pray, confessing our sins to one another, being aware that our sin brings God wrath and chastisement. First, in the curse of original sin, and second, by our willful sinning in life. It brings temporal wrath, war, disease, famine, and death. Most terribly, it brings eternal wrath and hell, apart from God's glorious face. Deep inside fierce anger. And it is here that I would like to mention some good news. In the midst of the bad news, we do have good news. The good news is that this eternal God graciously sent a propitiatory sacrifice, that is, an offering to himself that will satisfy his wrath once and for all. And this is on behalf of all of those for whom it has been given. You see, brothers and sisters, if you are brothers and sisters, we have been born again, we have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, and we've been given a new heart in order to what? To exercise the gifts of repentance and faith. Repentance away from the worship of dead idols and of self and toward the only one true living God, Yahweh, and faith. Faith in the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ, who being God, took on human flesh and came to earth being born of the Virgin, living the perfect sinless life that none of us could ever live, fully pleasing his Father, and thus meriting eternal life, but not keeping it for himself, rather giving it on behalf of sinners like you and like me, laying it down for all who would believe in him, dying on the cross, taking the full punishment, the wrath of God that we deserved. And he satisfied it 100%. He satisfied the dead owed to his Father in heaven for his left people on the earth, paying the price that we could never pay. Dying but not staying dead, rising again on the third day. And he ascended to the Father's right hand now where he lives always to intercede for the saints. And we know he will return to judge the earth. So this is the good news for those who believe in his name. So if you do not and you feel the weight of your sin this evening, I plead you run to Christ. He who runs to him will never be cast away. If you want to talk more about peace the gap, you can talk to Caleb, you can talk to me. We would like nothing better than to share this more with you. Application 2, we talked about numbering our days. Don't be your last. Pray, prioritize spiritual discipline, walk in, walk in the world with the Lord. Make wise and godly decisions based on his word. Guard your tongue and what you type online. Begin and end with God. And finally, application three was pray for the children. Seek and work for and pray for God's blessing on your spiritual descendants, your own children, of course, but also the future generations of the church, that they would walk in grace and be blessed and bold for the sake of Christ, knowing that neither they nor we can succeed apart from God's enabling grace. So, as we started, seeing posts on social media from people who died shortly after, some even the very day, of their death, some knowing the end was near and taking, and others being taken completely by surprise. It's sobering. If you love social media or hate it, it's a unique time to be sure to be able to see these things. So take this time to acknowledge that life is fleeting. Brothers and sisters, redeem the time. Make the most of it while it's still cold today, because tomorrow is not promised to any man or woman. And eternity awaits. But the question is, are you ready? Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for giving the people who used to hear such a long uh, sermon. I pray that what you, what comes from your truth that is true, 
would be heard and remembered, and anything that I said that missed the mark would be quickly forgotten. I pray, Father, that you would enable us to do all the things that are prescribed here in your word, that we would do it by your grace, that we would bring you maximum glory, and that it would build up and edify your church. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Let's, uh, let's thank our brother for bringing the word. Uh, at this time, what we're going to do is just have an open opportunity for you to ask questions you might have pertaining to the sermon that we just heard. And if, uh, if anybody would like to start, let's just see some things. Any questions you would have? Who would ask them? It's not something for you. That will be very easy to do. Alright, I'm going to get started. I have some questions. And if you think of them while I'm asking a few, please uh, go ahead and uh, let me know. I'm going to see what in here. Okay, a couple of questions that I have. First of all, John Edwards quote, ouch, um, when we see that, I don't know about you guys, but there's a tendency, I think, in my heart to be a chronic time waster. Um, my question for you is, how do we help hold each other accountable to numbering our days in the way that we spend our time? How do we keep one another accountable to do this without being judgmental or hypocritical? Because the way that you waste time might not be the way that I waste time. Right. But I think we're all probably good at wasting time. Right. So how do you do that? Well, I think that you're not asking the method, but a call or text works one that a bunch of people that I'm texting throughout the week. Um, but I think surrounding that with humility and being transparent about your own sins and your own shortcomings. And so therefore, it can come across, whenever someone tells you to do something, no matter how gently it can come across as I have all figured out in your weak and I'm strong. And that's not, that's not the case. And being upfront with your struggles um, and being clear and also having things that you can give the other person to hold you, it's a two-way street. You're not saying, well, you know, how did you do this week? Okay, goodbye. You need to ask the other person as well. So I think one thing that's worked in my life has been overly uh, uh, transparent with my struggles, with my time wasting, with what I do that isn't important. Um, and just my, uh, you know, the way that I go about things. And then also acknowledging, like you said, that we don't always struggle with the same flavor of sin or the same way to waste time. You know, for years I, I read very quickly. I just, um, I read too quickly. And so when I would read, I would take five, five books with me at a time, usually theology and stuff. And then it, I could watch two or three movies at night because I read so quickly. And so what I would struggle with, you know, how, why other people couldn't read as quickly or why they were still in the same chapter. But then, even though I read quickly, watching, even if it's not inappropriate material, that still can be viewed as wasting time. It's, it's like I felt like I was rushing past what I needed to do so I can relax as opposed to um, slowing down and enjoying. I learned a lot of that from you about slowing down when reading and digesting things. So being open to the fact that people don't struggle in the same way you do goes a long way when holding each other accountable. Any questions from anybody? All right, I have another question for you. Um, one of the things that you mentioned was hidden sin or the fact that we have no such thing as secret sin. God sees it all. So... Um, I know that there have been times in the past where people have 
just hit hit on that, and there was conviction in my heart in the you know in the past, and I thought, what do I even do with this? What do I do? So if there's somebody here today who is just saying like, I have hidden sin, I have secret sin, I I know that God sees it. What am I supposed to do with that? What would you encourage somebody to do if they've just got a lifestyle of of sin that's just they think they've got it under the rug. Okay, so th there's two separate things here. Let's just talk about not the lifestyle, which is, I think, a, a slightly separate issue. But, uh, you know, maybe you've, you've wronged your wife or your husband or you've done something at work, something not ethical or, or integrous, whatever the case may be. Uh, the answer is to go directly to that person and tell them um, if it's something that has hurt them directly. That is something that the Lord, I believe, honors. Um, so that is something where, again, you know, whatever the case is, you know, you've gossiped about somebody, you, you, you know, you, whatever it is, I think that's immediate. When it comes to a lifestyle, that's deeper. That's something where, obviously, if it's a, if it's a sin that is affecting uh, other people in your life and in your family, you need to go to the, them, but you also need to go to Christians that... Uh, uh, are more mature than you are and that you could confide in to speak to and get counsel from. And so I think sometimes the, the lifestyle sins or when something's been going on for so many years, it's hard to break that. It's not impossible because God does it all the time, but it's something that needs to be really dug in. And I think, you know, we all sin daily, but if it's, if it's a, a sin that stands out to you that you committed against your brother-in-law, then you need to go make that right. So... Always go to the person, but I, I always recommend seeking counsel um, from wise Christians as how to go about it. There are some things that I believe, uh, hopefully you'll agree, that are better, being the, the type or the environment, are better left not said in certain ways. There, there are some people that are so eager to confess sins that they just spout it out to anyone that will listen. You know, the kids in the children's church. No, you don't do that. There's there's a time and a place. So sometimes counsel of, of how to say or what to say is also important. Because the heart is right, you want to get, you want it, but there's a way to go about it. Um, but that is true. There are no secret sins. And, uh, you know, I once saw this cheesy plaque. Hopefully no one has it in their house because it's true. But one of my friends has said, Christ is the hidden guest at this house. Well, you know, it's so true. He is there. And so if we saw... Jesus physically here, we would not do the same things if we were alone. So we need to, to act as though he were here because he is here. And that's something that, you know, as cheesy as it is, has gone a long way in my life as well. Amen. Uh, Gideon. Well, I have a calendar, and I put one on the first now. Um, it's an attitude, I think, first and foremost, you know, as we age, just physically, um, we see how short life is. My, my dad is 82. He has a lot of health problems, and he'll often say that he, the, day, the day before he felt like he, he was 20, and now he's 80. So, and he's an unbeliever, so that's a different issue. Um, but so, uh, you need to make the most of each and every day. And the little things, that I know I give like 800 points, but the prioritizing for me goes a long way you know, things that you want to accomplish that day, even if you don't get to all of them, but making a priority list of things that are most important and being willing to let go of the things that are not as important, even if everything on the list is good, you know? So for instance, 
uh, family Bible reading, when my family do it each night. We also do a study by uh, Sproul about the basic tenets of the, and we love it, but sometimes we don't get around to it because the Bible study is too long or it's too late, so we make priorities. So the two good things, but we choose to study the Bible before we do supplementary books. Um, but I think it's an attitude. It's an attitude knowing that we're not here forever. When we're young, we like, feel like we're invincible, but we're not. And so today, you know, having a migraine was sobering because I'm like, I think I'm going to die. You know, how am I going to do this? I'm, I was excited. It's the first night at Gateway with Wednesday Worship. I was really honored to preach, and I was excited. And I'm like, you know, if, if a migraine makes me feel like that, you know what I mean? How does real, uh, you know, issues and hardships affect a person? So practically write stuff down, make lists, even if you don't keep them. Be gracious with yourself but make them according to God's word. And what does he care about? Does he care about us being a witness at work? Does he care about us loving our family? The answer is yes to both. And how do we go about that? And that's, that's how you do it. But it, it, I'd like to write stuff down. Questions, questions, questions. Henry. Yeah, so there's, there, you know, there's a phrase that you shouldn't be more focused on your sin than the Savior. So there's a balance that goes on. You can be like Luther, who's my hero, um, who even after coming to the light was, you know, he beat himself up. I mean, there, there, there's, usually when I counsel people, if they're flipping about their sin, I'm very heavy-handed. And if they're, if they're woe is me, then I come alongside and share, you know, the fact that they're forgiven. But you need to balance both things. The, the, the white heart, hot anger of God, the Father, was poured out upon Jesus. And so the sin that you're not giving up, he was punished for that. And it's not just to make you emotional, I feel so bad, but that's the truth. So he was punished for that specific sin, that specific decision. And so there's one way to realize all that he did for you for you now to step forward in a wrong direction, it should, it should color the, what your next decision is going to be. Um, as for his, his anger, his anger, his anger is never focused now toward the believer because the believer has Christ's perfect record. But our sins do produce chastisement, which might feel like punishment, but it's not the same. It could be on the surface the same thing. I've told the story before. Two people, God forbid, are in a car accident, a believer and an unbeliever. And the believer had some unconfessed sin that they were holding on to, right? And the unbeliever, they both get very seriously injured. That can be looked at on as temp temporal punishment to the unbeliever, but chastisement and, and, um, and like a loving rebuke to the believer. So knowing that your sins will have repercussions in this life. So that's a way that, no, it, you know, my, my superstitious uh, Roman Catholic grandmother would say, God will get you if you do that. That's not true. But when you sin, it, there will be a repercussion of it. So that's something to keep in mind. But just considering his anger, it makes us more appreciative 
for what the Lord Jesus endured for on our behalf and, and how merciful God the Father was to even send Jesus in the first place? It's a very good question. Yeah, it's, it's a tough one, right? Because in the Old Testament, the people, that says they had unbelief. And so they were still enemies of God, right? And then as we become children of God, we can displease him, but he won't, he won't despise us or destroy us, right? Right. Good question. Thank you. That was a great answer. Um, any other questions from the body? Yeah, Francesco. Yeah. I think anything imaginable. I think it could be illness. I think it, I think it could be, um, it could be financial. I think it could be anything. The thing is, again, I think that the it seems from Scripture that when God does a thing, when He has a work, many different people groups are affected by one thing. So it, it'll look like you're being punished, but we don't, I don't like to use the word punishment because we're not punished, but it's going to feel the same way, and I, I do believe the scripture supports the fact that you would get sick, like again, the people with the Lord's Supper, something that I I'm still struggle with understanding, um, I don't believe Ananias and Sapphira were saved, however, if they were, the, the goal was that fear spread over the church, you know, when they didn't give all their proceeds to, to the apostles, they kept some money back, and the Holy Spirit, they lied to the Holy Spirit, and they were struck dead, and fear, you know, reverence, you know, surrounded the church to teach something, so I think it could be physical, I think it could be financial, I mean, I think anything that's unpleasant could be it, I do not believe that a chastisement will be giving someone over to their sin, like it would say in Romans 1. I don't think it's ever a great thing. Like, you now you're in paradise. I mean, it's like, you know, when the prodigal son went away, you know, he had to see how miserable he was after he blew all the money and come back. So I don't think Scripture would support that it could be a positive thing that you just have to realize. I think it's going to be painful. I think it's going to be uncomfortable. And I think it's going to be used to uh, cause repentance. And also, sometimes we're, it's just the sanctifying grace of God and you cannot point to any specific sin. Sometimes God just lays things on believers to fashion them into the image of Christ, even if, you, to the best of their knowledge, if they can be completely honest, they can't point to a reason, but God does it anyway. So the form, I think, could be anything that's unpleasant to the person. Excellent. That's where we're going to... Oh, we have one more. Cornell, you're going to close us out that's with this be last a hard question. One. Right, okay, so, yeah, so my, my interpretation of that, because I knew that two million plus died in the wilderness, and again, that's a difficult thing to understand. Who is he praying, what's, you know, I, the promise of God was fulfilled in their physical children, okay? But with Israel, it's different than the church, because there's a nation of God's people, and the church is made up of all different peoples. What makes, what sets us apart is we're in Christ, okay? So, what my application was, first, being a dad, you know, I want to pray for, for my son. We pray every night that he would be saved. Um, but I don't think it's limited to that. I think it's limited to 
future generations. I think we can use it in a church setting, those of us that don't have children, that we can pray, and not only pray, but also work towards the uh, evangelism and the nurturing of the kids and just pe young people and just new converts. It could be an elderly new convert. I, I, I think that that's, that was my application of it. It's extending it past the physical children to any believer and children seems to signify someone younger or someone younger in the faith or something like that. That's excellent. I love the way you correlated the people of Israel who were dying and basically saying this next generation, if the promises of God are going to continue, they're going to come through those people because God already said none of us are going to get in. Uh, Moses himself didn't get in. And right. So the promise is only going to be fulfilled through, through them. So I, I thought you did a great job with that. Thank you. Thank you for your questions. I hope that uh, this summer that you will continue to grow in your ability to hear and listen and critically examine and respond with good questions. Uh, so continue to come and do that. Next week, bring a friend. We want to see all of these chairs filled with bodies ready to hear the word of the Lord. For now, I'm going to ask that the worship team will come forward. As they do, let's just encourage our brother one more time and thank him for his ministry in the word.